Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. It was all serendipity, but it helped me create the perfect resume for helping people in crisis, a crisis created by Wall Street. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, November 18th, 2021, and it's the birthday of my son, who is almost the same age as I was when I first became aware of the damage Wall Street was doing in the lending markets. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. little housekeeping. The webinar materials are loaded on the blog, but they are apparently not accessible. I don't know why. So if people write to me at neilfgarfield at hotmail.com, I will send them the webinar materials for the webinar tomorrow at 4 p.m. involving... uh, Pre-litigation strategies, it qualifies for one continuing legal education credit. It uh, it is a one-hour webinar. And two weeks later, I think it's December 3rd, we have the follow-up conference call where we do questions and answers about the webinar content. The syllabus for the webinar is on livinglies.me, and uh, you need only click on the link at the time. It's free, and you'll be able to attend. Afterwards, the recorded webinar will be available, but it will probably be for a small fee uh, because of the expenses of uh, recording and storing. I didn't plan it. In fact, planning was not in my nature back when I was a teenager and in my early 20s. It was pure serendipity. There are three areas of expertise required to understand developments in the current marketplace. Most people only have one of them. I happen to stumble into a path of life where I acquired all three. First is investment banking and the sale of securities. Second is accounting and auditing. Third is trial law. That describes a part of my life since 1964 when I was just graduating high school. I had already started trading and investing successfully as a teenager and got interested in the mystery of Wall Street. And because members of my family owned seats on all the exchanges, I had easy access to gaining employment on Wall Street. As I moved through careers in my life, 
I'm almost 75 years old now. I never knew I was creating the perfect resume to understand the events that would give rise to the current infrastructure that we call securitization. Recently, I found that by recounting or telling the short story of my life in that context, that people understand better than what I simply write uh, how and why we are in the third decade of the largest economic crime in human history and why nobody in power wants to do anything about it. When I first encountered the new reality, remember the new economy from the 1990s where uh, volume was the only thing that counted, regardless of whether you ever got paid for it. The new reality in the late 1990s and early 2000s was the availability of free money. It wasn't entirely free, but it basically appeared to be almost free to the people who purchased financial products from companies that were uh, at least uh, advertising themselves as lenders. I instantly recognized back in 2004 when I did some closings as a lawyer and on behalf of some uh, relatives also as a lawyer, I guess, I instantly recognized that the banks were at it again. Ten years earlier, I had come to learn that the real estate bubbles were not caused by demand for money or housing. It was Wall Street pressure on people to borrow money that created the demand for money, and the more money they could get, the higher prices rose because if there is one basic element of everything – the theory of everything on Wall Street is to close the deal, regardless of the impact on buyer or seller. They were pressuring the marketplace, as they have had done repeatedly for 150 years or more, into a bubble that would burst, and they were counting on both the bubble and the burst. And they would make money during the, pre the pressure that led to the bubble, and they would make money when the market would burst. They were always betting against the markets that they created. My first run-ins with the banks starting around 1980 was also just by chance, based upon clients coming to me seeking to obtain results. Uh, I went up against a very large bank, and it was the head of the largest law firm in Florida that opposed me as counsel. I won, and I had and all banks, credit unions, savings and loan associations changed their business practice as a result of a case that I won. It was around 1980. Uh, involving uh, what was stamped on a deposit receipt. Uh, and my client was delighted because he got to keep the money. 
It was in 1983 that the great PR and advertising plan was launched, pretty much within the same timeline as the Purdue Pharma promotion of a national narrative about pain, breakthrough pain, and OxyContin. I make reference to that because I just saw Dope Sick. It's all about a national narrative, labels that people come to accept, and addiction to the money that comes from allowing the scheme to continue. So tonight I answer the essential question of how and why the current infrastructure came into being. I'll take you back to the paper crisis of the 1960s and my role in that. The ascent of the use of something called street name. Instead of getting the certificate, you left it in the name of the brokerage house. The creation of a fake regulatory entity for handling certificates. The onset of junk bonds. The Goldman Sachs laddering plan and how that scheme gave rise to the current structures that are used to eliminate and then create the illusion of an existing loan account. So before I go any further, I should say that I'm strongly in favor of capitalism. It is the only economic system that seems to support both democracy and rising prosperity for most people. It is also the only system so far that has durability. All the other systems that have been tried have correctly identified the defects in capitalism, but then tried to use solutions that ended up not working in the real world. And the fact that greed exists on Wall Street is simply an attribute that is unavoidable in an industry that exists solely for the purpose of creating capital for people and businesses. Blaming people on Wall Street for being greedy has no more merit than blaming a soldier for firing bullets on the battlefield. That's what they're there for. I would also point out that it has been donations from Wall Street that have funded policies, programs, and projects that were created and promoted uh, by those who called themselves progressive or socialist. To be sure, there are serious defects in capitalism, and that is why we need government regulation to prevent the entire system from going off the rails. But I am not against banks, and I am not against Wall Street firms or, or the system of capitalism that is represented by Wall Street firms. My position is that Wall Street has once again gone off the rails. It's not the first time, and I guess it won't be the last. And since government has been at least partially complicit in that process, it is up to consumers in general and homeowners in particular since it's their home and lifestyle that's at stake, to challenge any claim relating to the administration collection or enforcement of any money arising out of any transaction conducted with homeowners or consumers, and that that challenge should be done at the earliest possible moment. That's the point of pre-litigation strategies and tactics because the problem that most lawyers have encountered is that by the time homeowners get to them, they're already in litigation, which means 
that they've either directly or indirectly admitted the existence of a loan account, the the authority of the company claiming to be a servicer, the accuracy of the payment history, and a lot of other things that they then want the lawyer to go in and deny. If you do this earlier, if you take a proactive stance as soon as you have one of these transactions, I think you'll find that either you don't have a loan at all or that you're in a very highly leveraged position to seek major relief and satisfaction. But that requires an informed consumer who takes action before action is taken against the consumer. The great paper crash of the 1960s was my introduction to the world of Wall Street. In 1968, I started working for A.L. Stam, a securities brokerage firm with a large research department. And I became a trainee in that department and became a financial and securities analyst and got licensed as, as a securities broker. A.L. Stan collapsed, and whether it collapsed because of the paper crash is anybody's guess, but I would say yes. That's just my opinion. My direct uh, involvement in the paper crash was when I worked for a company called Spingarn Heine, that was directed by Max Heine, who was then regarded as the king of trading in undervalued corporate and and municipal bonds, bonds that had lost their value because a lot of people thought that they would never be paid. He made a ton of money. He was fabulously wealthy, and he took me under his wing, and it was because of him that I was able to attend meetings with people who would later become famous and where I got direct information from the horse's mouth on what they were doing. So what happened in the paper crash? The story was that the volume of trading on the exchanges became so great that it was hard to keep track of the paper certificates that were being bought and sold. So if you bought a stock, you ordinarily in the 50s and early 60s would, in the mail, expect and receive the certificate showing that you own 20 or 100 or 1,000 shares of whatever stock it was. Gradually, Wall Street convinced people to leave the certificates in the custody of the brokerage firm and to allow the brokerage firm to use its name as the owner of the certificate unless the customer opted out of that arrangement, which most people did not. This enabled brokerage firms to use those certificates as though they were 
the property of the brokerage firm. They, in turn, went out and sold or financed short sales or trading or borrowed using those certificates as collateral because, after all, they were in the name of the uh, brokerage firm. The only evidence the customer had that they owned anything was in a monthly statement they received, which is exactly the same as now. So, literally, brokers were trading the, pro the property of others. They were trading in options based upon that trading. And they were getting hedge and insurance contracts based upon the trading and the options. This was Wall Street pretending to be a commercial bank where they took the money from customers and then used it however they wanted. But they were only pretending and therefore they were not regulated as a commercial bank, something that was corrected uh, back in the 2009 uh, uh, recovery where they, I say corrected, I don't think it ever should have happened, but they made all these investment banks, securities brokerage firms, commercial banks, to cover over the fact that they had been acting as illegally as commercial banks all along. And This was something that was engraved in stone when they made that change because Wall Street said that if it wasn't made legal, they would pull the plug on the whole financial system. That threat was an empty threat. I know there are people who disagree with me, and those people in many cases are very high up at the Federal Reserve. But there's plenty of people in the Federal Reserve who agree with me. There's plenty of people in the FDIC who agree with me. There's plenty of people in the Treasury Department who agree with me. That threat, combined with abundant donations from a ridiculous scheme that produced a flow of money unlike anything that we've ever seen before, enabled Wall Street to, uh, in the words of one senator, buy the place. By the end of the 1960s, the New York Stock Exchange announced that it was launching a central stock certificate system to deliver securities electronically. So in other words, they were delivering data on the securities, not the certificates themselves. It was rudimentary, voluntary, and unreliable, but it formed the basis for what would then become, in 1973, the, the creation of the Depository Trust Corporation. As its name indicated, the DTC required that all players in the market rely on a single centralized institution to hold 
what was then 1.5 billion shares worth $55 billion. We've come a long way since then. Depository Trust Corporation turns out to be not a public institution with public accountability, but a private company that performs the function of a central securities depository as part of the U.S. national market system. Since 1999, it's been a subsidiary of Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, which is a securities holding company, all private companies. There's no public regulation of any of these. Inch by inch. In 2008, the Clearing Corporation and Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation announced that members will benefit from process that they call netting and risk management and that they will leverage the asset servicing capabilities of those those so-called clearing organizations. What they were doing was creating another private entity in which the um, uh, additional securities, to put it simply, could be issued based upon risk management, and those all related back to the mere existence of a certificate that was owned by somebody, but nobody cared anymore who actually owned it. And then uh, the DTCC formed the Trade Information Warehouse for credit default swaps and related uh, contracts or securities, whatever you want to call them. And that, of course, opened the door for the, the ultimate uh, holy grail for Wall Street, which is the unlimited capacity to issue, and at the present time, digital certificates uh, indefinitely without relation to the sale of any original asset, but rather in relation to risk management. So, in other words, on data. So all of that was acquired by Deutsch, which in turn was uh, the, the, the Avox Limited, which was located in North Wales, was acquired by Thomson Reuters. And uh, then the DTCC entered into a joint venture with a New York Stock Exchange known as New York Portfolio Clearing that would allow, quote, investors to combine cash and derivative positions in one clearinghouse to lower margin costs. Though that language may sound like gibberish because that's what it is. It's just another slush fund or vehicle by which slush funds could be created. The two board members of that whole 
larger entity, two of the board members are selected as preferred shareholders by ICE and FINRA. The international exchange, ICE, owns the New York Stock Exchange, MERS, and most of the players that are involved with uh, uh, derivatives, uh, so-called mortgage-backed instruments, and, uh, and the financial technology companies. It directs the financial technology companies. And the financial technology companies essentially are the ones that have control over all deposits received from homeowners and make all uh, distributions to investors at the instruction of the investment bank that started the securitization structure. So ICE owns and operates six central clearinghouses, etc. FINRA is the financial industry regulatory authority, another private company, but it sounds like it's a public agency. It isn't. FINRA is the successor to the National Association of Securities Dealers, of which Bernie Madoff was the head. And and so it goes. So thus continued the attitude of Wall Street and all the politicians that Wall Street paid that all remedies and all regulation was supposed to be private, free from government interference, accountability, or enforcement. Similar to the moves that J.P. Morgan personally made in the crash of 1907 when he forced members of the exchange to pony up money to stop the crash, which is exactly the opposite of what happened in 2008, 100 years later. It was the, gov the government in 2008 who ponied up the money, but instead of stopping the crash by preventing a catastrophe to homeowners and other consumers, they gave more extortion money to firms <coughs> on Wall Street who used the money to satisfy bets and options they owned that the market would crash, thus transforming the role of securities firms as the trusted intermediary to the depository trust company as an outsourced trusted intermediary that introduced the idea of relying on reports as though they were the original data. And that's what we've got with servicers today. They're not based on any internal accounting because the company that produces the report has no internal accounting because it did not participate in any financial transaction with homeowners, nor does it participate in any financial transaction with investors. This allows for considerable finger-pointing at what looks like arm's length. And this provided the opportunity to claim plausible deniability or mistake for things that the Wall Street firm allegedly did not control or for mistakes in the Wall Street firm that occurred in loading data from DTC to the records of the securities firm. 
with responsibility and accountability thus distributed into vague but seemingly precise places, this opened the door to take the risks and exploited in the, the in the paper crisis to new le, uh, new levels. So let me just quickly mention that in the 1980s, I was part of uh, a movement in the uh, real estate industry in which we created very uh, layered um, limited partnerships to own specific properties. And the way it would go was like this. The limited partnership would own the property but the limited partnership was governed by a general partner. The general partner was a limited partnership by yet another general partnership, and that general partnership was governed by a corporate general partner. Each one of those entities owned a tiny fraction, like 0.1% of the deal. What Wall Street did was it took that model and the corporate um, general partner became the trustee. The first general partnership became the trust. The second general partnership became the master servicer, and the third became the subservicer, none of which had any real interest in the asset. But in addition, they removed the asset. That's it for tonight. I'll talk to you tomorrow for those of you who join us in the webinar. Thanks for joining me. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.